greetings. This is not the uh, first time I've spoken on the Sunday closest to New Year's Day. It's kind of become a tradition, I think, because this is at least the fifth or sixth time that I've spoken at one of the main services, either on the final Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of the new year, whatever is closest to New Year's Day. And I, I normally would try to preach a sermon that's suitable for the New Year's celebration, but that has gotten me in trouble in the past. Uh, in, it's 20 years ago, and this is fresh in my mind, exactly 20 years ago this week, 1999, the very first Sunday of the new year was January 3rd that year, and uh, so it was still New Year's weekend, and on that year, Saturday the 2nd, I got a call from John MacArthur to tell me he was sick and he wouldn't be able to preach, and he wondered if I would fill in the following day, and so I said, sure. Now, I don't know if you remember what the evangelical climate was like in 1999 at the beginning, but everyone was already talking about the Y2K bug and, and the apocalyptic disaster that was supposed to unleash on the world. You had Gary North, who at the time was, I think, the most feisty theonomic polemicist in Christendom, who was urging people to stockpile food and, and build bunkers and a host of other evangelical soothsayers who were predicting, you know, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And people kept asking me if the elders of Grace Church were going to issue any kind of formal warning to our people about the Y2K disaster. And so I decided, foolishly, that Sunday to take the opportunity and deal with that issue in a message. And I preached a sermon on Matthew 6, 25 through 33, where Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and uh, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, Jesus says. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And my message was titled, The Serious Sin of Worry. And there was a small group of Y2K fear mongers who went ballistic that morning, and they scolded me as soon as the service was over, right down here at the foot of the steps. And three or four of them subsequently actually left Grace Church and moved to Idaho to get off the grid. And, and I remember this little group of angry people standing at the foot of these stairs, shaming me for lulling the people of Grace Church into unconcern about this looming disaster. And the guy who seemed to be the leader of the group finally said to me, I want you to promise me that when there is a massive meltdown and, and the world erupts into chaos a year from now, you're going to issue a formal apology and admit that we tried to warn you and you were wrong. And I said, I'll make that promise if you'll promise me that when it turns out you're wrong, you ring me from your bunker and apologize for jumping all over me at the close of our church service. And that was 20 years ago this week, and that guy still hasn't come back to me. But the scandal of that sermon followed me for a year, and because there were quite a few people in those days who really weren't sure what to make of the Y2K scare, and, and some of them looked askance at me for a totally a year until the Y2K apocalypse sort of fizzled, and, and then no one really said anything more about it. So I still bear in my soul the scars of that controversy, and this year, I decided to speak on something that I hope won't raise as many hackles. I've chosen the subject 
of unity. And I want to look at that theme from Psalm 133. I've been thinking about this psalm since last year's, or earlier this year, the Shepherds Conference, when Austin Duncan preached on this text, and he gave, I think, the best discourse I have ever seen on Aaron's beard and, and beards in general. And, and so I want to go back to Psalm 133 tonight, and let's talk about the doctrine of unity, the principle of unity, as we look to a new year. And, and this will be for us as a congregation an important and busy year. It's a monumental year in the history of Grace Community Church because it's John MacArthur's 50th anniversary as pastor here, his jubilee year. And so I chose the subject of unity not because I think Grace Church needs any kind of corrective or urgent words of caution in this area, but precisely because, in my mind, this is one of the distinctive features of Grace Church that we need to celebrate together. This congregation enjoys more true unity, a sweeter sense of harmony and fellowship than any church I've ever known anywhere, and that is especially remarkable for a church this large. And it starts with John and the pastoral staff but it extends to you, the congregation, and you are to be commended for it. And so what I want to do tonight is more or less informally kick off our Jubilee year with a celebration of unity from the text of this psalm. By the way, Psalm 133 is the 14th in a series of 15 short psalms that are grouped together in our canon, all of them labeled Songs of Ascents ascent, you know, as in going up. These are 15 short choruses, starting with Psalm 120. You know, Psalm 119, you probably know, is the longest of all the Psalms. It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And that Psalm, Psalm 119, is entirely about the Word of God. And it is ultimately and immediately followed by these 15 really short Psalms that are grouped together and labeled with the same inscription, a song of ascents. And these, by the way, are the only 15 psalms anywhere that are labeled that way. And uh, so it's clear that they were grouped together on purpose. It's like a small collection of choruses, like a, a little songbook within the psalms. And it seems to have been collected for a reason, because these were choruses sung by pilgrims making the journey to Jerusalem for the various annual feast days. So these are like road trip choruses, the kind of stuff you'd sing on the bus if they took buses, which they didn't in those days, but they sang them on the donkeys anyway. All 15 psalms in this collection are fairly short, and the last two, Psalm 133, our psalm, and Psalm 134, which is the last in the collection, those last two psalms consist of just three verses each. And furthermore, both of these two final psalms of ascent begin with the same word. It's a Hebrew word that the ESV translators have translated behold in Psalm 133, and in, but in Psalm 134, for reasons I, I'm not sure of, they render the same word as come. The, in the King James and the New King James and the NASB, all those words are translated Behold, the NIV in Psalm 134 seems to leave it out completely. And again, I don't understand why, because this is an important word for setting the tone of the psalm. It's like an exclamation. 
Grammatically, it's known as a demonstrative particle, and its purpose is to express surprise or delight and to summon the immediate attention of the listener. Older English speakers might have said, lo, as in, lo, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so the design of this first word is to arrest our attention and to direct our thoughts in a very focused way on the subject that is being introduced. And in this case, the subject is unity. And by the way, this is one of just four of the 15 Psalms of Ascent that is specifically attributed to David. David wrote this. And, and let me remind you that the inscription that attributes it to David, this is part of the inspired text. So we know with certainty who the author of this psalm was. And furthermore, what we know about David's life gives us a pretty solid clue about the context in which this psalm was written. And I'll show you that. But first, here's the whole psalm, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing for life forevermore. I love the, the brevity and the sharp focus that we get from a simple song like this. The, the whole subject is given in the final word of that first verse. And again, this is a song about unity. The structure is very simple as you look at it. Verse 1 commends unity among the brethren as a great blessing. Verse 2 illustrates the blessing of unity with the imagery of anointing oil. And then verse 3 illustrates the blessing of unity with an illustration of dew on the mountains. And so let's break this down and learn as much as we can about unity from these three simple verses. First, I mentioned that the context is important. The demonstrative particle that starts this psalm, the word behold, gives it the flavor of a, a great sigh of relief, a, a prayer of thanksgiving, or, or a gentle plea. It's a subtle admonition to the brethren spoken of in verse 1, urging them to maintain the blessing of unity. Behold, here's a, a marvelous experience that's rarely seen, a blessing that is worth preserving, a benefit with no danger or downside, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is a song that apparently comes from the heart of someone who has been earnestly longing for unity, someone who has suffered greatly because of the conflicts created by disunity, and someone who is deeply grateful for the relief from his suffering now that unity has finally been brought about and they have peace. This whole psalm perfectly answers a verse from the very first song in this cycle of 15 choruses. Psalm 120, verse 6 says, "'Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace.'" Now, since this psalm was penned by David, it's not particularly difficult to infer what era of his life may have produced this psalm? Because there is one moment in the life of David where this psalm would best fit. It seems to be David's song of celebration in response to the peace and harmony that was finally 
that finally settled over the nation when David, who was the rightful king of Israel, was finally installed on the throne. Scripture describes in detail the years leading up to that event, and it was a time of great division and turmoil. David, of course, was anointed to be king shortly after Samuel prophesied that Saul and his dynasty was going to be deposed. But David had to endure years of exile and torment from the hand of Saul because Saul was obviously not happy to relinquish the throne, and in fact, he never did step down. Saul continued to occupy the throne until the day he died. And even when Saul died, David didn't immediately take the reins of government. There was a long power struggle in Israel that led to a civil war, and the kingdom was nearly torn in two. And so, let me give you a short history lesson and and just recount how that happened. You probably remember that Saul's reign as king ended in utter disgrace. He died, or rather, he took his own life in a losing battle with the Philistines. Saul had been wounded by arrows shot from some Philistine archers, and he was about to be captured, and so he committed suicide rather than face the mistreatment he would have gotten from the hands of the Philistines. And and so the whole battle turned into a massive defeat for Israel's army. According to 1 Samuel 31, verse 6, Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men all on the same day together. That's how Scripture describes it. Now, that would have seemed to be the, the end of Saul's dynasty for years before he died. Saul had been nothing more than a trespasser on the throne. In effect, he was a usurper of the throne that now was rightfully David's. But now that he was dead, and so were his three eldest sons, if Saul had been the legitimate king of Israel, his eldest surviving son uh, would have been, in the popular opinion, the, the heir to the throne. And these three sons were his best, most likely candidates from all his offspring. But now Saul's most capable sons were all dead, all dead on the same day. Samuel had already anointed David to be king. That was well known. That was way back in 1 Samuel 16, several years before Saul's death in chapter 31. So you might think that David would finally be able to occupy the throne. It was, after all, rightfully his by God's own declaration. And that was no secret. It was common knowledge that God had appointed David to be the next king, but the transition from Saul to David led to bitter conflict. All but one of the tribes of Israel opposed David. By the way, you see the character of David in the fact that he mourns the death of Saul. He mourns. David even wrote a psalm for the occasion, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel 2, verses 19 through 27. You will recognize the most famous line of that psalm, how the mighty have fallen. The first and last verse of the psalm both include that line. It's a song of bitter lament. And despite Saul's hatred for David, David's song is full of gracious praise for Saul. And Saul's son, you know, Jonathan, was, of course, David's best friend. And Jonathan was also one of the three sons of Saul who died on the same day as their father. And so perhaps that explains the depth of David's grief. 
Saul's determination to to kill David had made it impossible for David and Jonathan to enjoy any kind of fellowship or friendship. And so by now, they had not been close companions for years, several years, and that was a deep heartache to David. And now Jonathan's death ended the possibility of that. So that perhaps helps explain why David was so sick of conflict and, and so eager to see unity in Israel. Anyway, Shortly after Saul's death, a group of officials from the tribe of Judah came to David with the expectation of installing David as king. 2 Samuel 2 verse 4 says, the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David, of course, was from that tribe, Judah. So these men were representatives from his own tribe. Saul had come from the tribe of Benjamin and This bid to make David king ignited a violent rivalry between those two tribes. Now, you have to remember that when Saul first became king, he was the first king of Israel. Back in 1 Samuel 8, it was at the behest of the people of Israel. This wasn't God's plan. In fact, installing Saul as king really was an act of rebellion against God's plan for the nation. But representatives of the people came to Samuel and demanded a king. And when Samuel tried to explain that God himself was the rightful monarch of Israel, and that made Israel unique among all the nations, the people didn't want to be unique among all the nations. They told Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations." and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And as sometimes happens when God wants us to taste the consequences of our own sins, the Lord gave them what they asked for. 1 Samuel 8, verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And so the people chose their own king. Now, note carefully what they said When they demanded a king, we want a king, they said, so that we may be like all the nations. And therefore, the king they chose fit the bill perfectly. He was the tallest, he was the most muscular, best-looking man in the nation. 1 Samuel 9 verse 2 describes him this way. He was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. But his looks were pretty much his own qualification. His reign as king proved that he was not a man of any kind of depth of character. He was strongly self-willed. He was lacking in discernment. He was bereft of personal devotion to the Lord, but he really looked good. And in that regard, I think, you know, Saul would have made a very appealing candidate for the American electorate today. He probably looked really good on TV. Anyway, the people chose Saul as their king based on what he looked like. And even Saul himself, at first, seemed to think this was a bad idea. When people started treating him the way you would treat a king, he said, 1 Samuel 9, 21, "'Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way?' And it was only after he became king that Saul became really the living embodiment of that familiar saying that 
power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Saul morphed into this self-willed, fleshly-minded, corrupt, capricious, and ultimately demon-possessed king. It could not have been a good and pleasant thing to live under a ruler such as Saul, especially in his declining years. But the whole point among the people was, in their own words, to be like all the nations. And the kings of other nations had dynasties. Their own sons succeeded them on the throne when they died, and it didn't matter whether they were benevolent or evil. The dynasty had to be kept intact, because a long dynasty was perceived as evidence of the nation's power and stability. So amazingly, the majority of Israel, the vast majority of people in the nation, wanted the eldest surviving son of Saul to be the next king. Now, the reason he wasn't killed in the war, this eldest surviving son, is because he was a weak and incompetent man named Ishbosheth. He was 12 years older than David, but he was not a man who was fit to lead. The commander of Saul's army was a man named Abner. And when Saul died, Scripture says, Abner took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and he made him king. Ishbosheth probably never would have sought an honor like that on his own, but Abner used him as a political pawn. And it's clear from the larger narrative that it was Abner who was the ambitious one. 2 Samuel 3.11 says, Ishbosheth was afraid of Abner. And so Abner is clearly the one in charge here, even though Ishbosheth has the title of king. And uh, he obviously, Abner didn't want to lose his clout as commander of the king's army, and he needed a kind of puppet king who would keep him in that position. Ishbosheth was the perfect choice for that because he was a man with a, a credible claim to Saul's legacy, but no real, no real will or strength of his own. So it's clear that Abner was the true power behind the throne. And so we read in 2 Samuel 2, verse 10, that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And all 11 other tribes remained loyal to the dynasty of Saul. And the result was a bitter civil war. At first, Abner, who was now Ishbosheth's commander, and Joab, who was David's commander, agreed, they were going to agree to this plan where they would choose 12 champions from their respective armies. And instead of having the two parts of the nation do a civil war against each other, they would choose out 12 of their best champions and have a contest among these elite fighting men instead of an all-out war. But 2 Samuel 2.16 says, each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they all fell down together. Bad plan. In other words, all 24 men from both sides, their special forces, their best soldiers, killed each other, and so this contest immediately, predictably, gave way to an all-out war. And Scripture says the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the details of this civil war, by the way, are chilling, especially when you realize these are Israelites fighting their fellow Israelites, relatives fighting one another, brothers against brothers. You can read about it for yourself in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. 
2 Samuel 3 verse 1 sums it all up this way. 2 Samuel 3, 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then it all gets really ugly. Ishbosheth accuses Abner of fornicating with one of Saul's concubines. So Abner turns against Ishbosheth, who he made him king, but he turns against him. And now Abner tries to make peace with David. But Joab, the commander of David's army, assassinates Abner in revenge for the fact that Abner had killed Joab's brother. And so now Abner dead, without Abner propping him up, Ishbosheth is too weak to maintain any illusion that he's the king. And Scripture says, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And a couple of wicked men in Ishbosheth's army then decided to try to ingratiate themselves to David by killing Ishbosheth. And so they snuck into Ishbosheth's house while he was taking his noonday rest, scripture says. They stabbed him to death, they beheaded him, and they took his head to David, expecting to be rewarded for their treachery. And instead, David had them killed, he had their feet and their hands cut off, and then he hanged their corpses. I told you it got ugly. But bear in mind, what those men did was treachery, couched in dishonesty against someone they had no right to kill. What David did, he did as king with all the authority God gives to a rightful ruler to punish evildoers. In the words of Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant to you for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath against the evildoer. And thus, with the death of the men who had killed Ishbosheth, that civil war and all its ugliness ended very suddenly and very completely. There was no man left in Israel who had an illegitimate craving for kingly power. And 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 4, describes how all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, "'Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, "'You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel.'" So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So David established the capital of the nation in Jerusalem for the first time. He began to build the region around Mount Zion into one of the world's great capital cities. He still fought wars against the Philistines and defended Israel against other foreign threats, but from the time he ascended the throne until his own son Absalom led a short-lived revolt, unity and peace reigned throughout Israel. The nation then prospered and grew under Solomon's leadership without wars of any kind for another whole generation. And then to just to illustrate how fragile and precarious unity can be, The whole nation split into two kingdoms after Solomon died, and Israel and Judah were never reunited again. So I think it's pretty clear that 
our psalm written by David must pertain in some way to that season in David's life when after decades of conflict and internal strife, he was able to unite the 12 tribes of Israel into one tranquil and harmonious kingdom. And the psalm is the inspired reflection of a royal heart finally at rest. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the psalm divides easily into three parts, three verses, three parts. Each verse is one piece of the whole. Each verse describes a unique blessing that unity brings. Verse 1 is about how unity is good for the soul. Verse 2 is about how unity sanctifies the body. And verse 3 is about how unity refreshes the land. So let's look at each verse individually. That's how we'll take this psalm tonight. Verse 1, unity is good for the soul. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's talk first about why unity is such a virtue, as well as what genuine unity really looks like. People today, I think, have a totally skewed idea of what unity entails, what it looks like, what it means, what it's supposed to achieve. There is a true unity, and that's what this psalm celebrates. And there's also a false brand of artificial unity that is actually harmful rather than beneficial. True unity is a reflection of God Himself. Unity is embodied in God's very nature. Here is what we confess. Together with all Christians from the beginning of the church age, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal the majesty co-eternal. That, by the way, is a quote from the Athanasian Creed. But here's how the Baptist Confession of Faith says it. Quote, The Lord our God is the one and only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself, and in this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided, one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but is distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. In other words, that's a very long way of saying God embodies unity. And the unity of God uh, entails a perfect, absolute agreement. It's a spiritual union. It's not an organic or organizational alliance. The spiritual union is expressly the kind of unity Jesus prayed for in John 17, 21. He prayed that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And again in verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And so the unity of the Godhead is the model for the unity Christians are supposed to seek and maintain. That's true unity. Remember that one of the central requests Jesus makes in that prayer, John 17, it's his high priestly prayer, is this 
request for unity, a prayer for unity for His people. But it's vital to understand that what Jesus describes here in that prayer, it's not something as mundane or tenuous as denominational or organizational unity. It's not that at all. Roman Catholics like to cite that prayer in John 17, and they often claim that submission to their ecclesiastical hierarchy is the only way to achieve the kind of unity Christ prayed for. And no matter how much Catholics disagree amongst themselves, you can see that just by comparing the last two popes, totally opposite ends of the theological and political spectrum, no matter how much they disagree on facts and doctrine, or how vastly different is the assortment of worldviews that you find represented among various leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, they think that by all being members of the same organization, they've somehow achieved the unity Christ prays for in John 17. And that is clearly not the case. And the very words of John 17 prove it. John 17, 17, just a few sentences before he prays for unity, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So at the very least, some shared commitment to truth must lie at the heart of the unity that Christ prayed for. Denomination, denominational boundaries are, are, are not necessarily even a hindrance to that kind of unity. But above all, the unity Christ sought hinges on the spiritual union that all believers have with Christ. That's, that's the focus of what he's talking about when he says, just as I am in you and you are in me, may they be one in us. He's talking there about the spiritual union that every true believer has with Christ. Ephesians 5.30 says, we are members of His body. And Romans 12 verse 5 says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So in that sense, Christ's prayer in John 17 has already been answered, and it's being answered as the church is being built up in that spiritual union that all of us as true believers enjoy. At its root is a shared belief in certain fundamental truths, and as we are being sanctified and perfected, our unity with one another is being perfected as well. Perfect unity is also one of the central promises of the new covenant, going all the way back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 32, 39. This is the promise of the covenant. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. So when we are ultimately glorified, the unity Christ prayed for will finally be absolutely perfect. That unity exists today. We enjoy it in this fellowship. It's not perfect yet. It will be, and all true believers look forward eagerly to that day. We have a taste of it now, but we look forward to an absolutely perfect unity. It's part of our birthright as believers. Now, I won't develop that point any further tonight except to say that even while we wait for the perfection of our unity, we already enjoy a tremendous amount of unity with the true people of God right now, not just in our own congregation, but congregations across the world who confess Christ as Lord, believe His Word, submit to the authority of His Word, we are one with all of them. And we enjoy that unity 
with the true people of God, and we seek a greater unity, which we gradually will attain as we gain more of a perfect understanding of God and His Word. That is why we put so much emphasis here at Grace Church on the necessity of sound and accurate teaching. It's essential to true unity. True unity is actually undermined and not advanced by people who think, you know, what we need to do is set aside all our concerns about sound doctrine. What they think is we need is basically just, you know, a group hug with everybody who claims to be a Christian, regardless of what they teach. But that's a recipe for error and ultimately division. It is not and never has been a path to true unity. I mentioned that there's a false kind of unity, and that's it. I've just described it for you. It is the notion so popular today that truth and doctrine are actually obstacles to unity. If you could have unity among people who don't actually agree on anything, it really wouldn't be unity at all, would it? But lots of people think precisely that way. They think we might be able to all get along if we would just refuse to make any point of truth an issue. Just accept or ignore all of the lies, the heresies, the false prophecies, the pagan superstitions. Don't contradict any of those things. Don't worry about them. Just get along with everybody. And that is how many, maybe most people in the world today think unity has to be achieved. That's not unity. It's confusion. And 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So again, the spiritual union and perfect agreement among the persons of the Godhead, that is the perfect example of true unity. And, and that means agreement with the Word of God is an absolute essential. It's the single most obvious fruit of true unity. But real unity is not only about being of one opinion. As Christians, we are also driven by one affection, our love for Christ. We share one loyalty, the lordship of Christ. And we have one duty, love, love for God and love for our neighbor. Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 6 starts actually at that very point and goes on to describe all of the essential elements of true Christian unity. Paul says, we pursue unity by bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, with all true brothers and sisters, people who are in Christ, we do enjoy unity, even while we find it necessary to wage ideological battles against the false doctrines and superstitious beliefs of Philistines who pretend to be Christians, but they aren't really in any way united with Christ. They represent a serious threat to true unity among our brethren if they try, and they often do, try to encroach on the fellowship of believers, they destroy unity because they lack that vital connection to Christ. And by the way, that image of simultaneous unity among the brethren and war against the Philistines, that mirrors the actual situation in Israel when David wrote this psalm. While David was celebrating how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He was in the process of waging war against fierce foreign enemies who threatened the peace of Israel. 
In fact, let's go back to our text. Notice the two adjectives there in verse 1, good and pleasant. Have you ever noticed that lots of things that are good are not pleasant, and lots of things that are pleasant are not good? Unity is both good and pleasant, and therefore it's one of the finest of all virtues. Not only good for the soul, it's also pleasing to the heart. Unity is good because it reflects the very nature of God. It's virtuous. It's honorable. It's an expression of righteousness. It's an extreme wickedness to undermine unity. Proverbs 6.19 says, actually, this is one of the seven things God hates with a holy passion, someone who sows discord among brothers. And a few verses before that, in Proverbs 6.14, we read, a worthless person, a wicked man with a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Proverbs 16.28, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. In other words, someone who seems to, and there are people like this, who seem to think that there's something compelling about causing division. A person like that has a mind that is totally given over to evil. Scripture uses very harsh language about this. Anyone who delights in setting brothers against one another is worthless and wicked. But conversely, James 3.18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So unity is honorable and noble and holy. It's good. More than that, unity is pleasant. And that means, first of all, that it's pleasing to God. He takes pleasure in it. He delights in it. But also, in a a very practical way, unity is pleasant to those who experience it. You know this, I hope, in your own household. It is a truly pleasant, joyous, exhilarating thing to dwell in unity with your wife and kids, loving one another, serving one another, creating a home environment that is free from strife. That is perhaps the easiest and most immediate path to tranquility and earthly bliss that's available to any of us. I frankly don't understand people who seem to have a perverse need to cause strife in their own families. But I know there are lots of people like that because it seems like they always come seeking counsel. They're also the kind of people who are resistant to counsel usually. But I think some people are so addicted to conflict that they simply cannot abstain from picking fights with their spouse and family members. And again, I don't understand that, and I certainly don't sympathize with it. It's absolutely vile. It is the textbook definition of sinful foolishness. But it's a sin also that creates its own painful consequences. Scripture clearly highlights this repeatedly. It's a a simple principle. Unity is pleasant. Living with conflict is unpleasant. Proverbs 21 verse 9, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Same chapter, verse 19, it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 25 verse 24 repeats verbatim Proverbs 21 9. So I gather Solomon must have felt pretty strongly about this. It's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. I'm guessing he had a specific axe to grind. But he doesn't just single out bickering wives. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25, "'Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, 
lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 20, verse 3, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Bottom line, a lack of unity makes everything in the household unpleasant. Proverbs 17, verse 1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So here's the point. Unity is a pleasant thing, pleasing to the heart, good for the soul. In a family, it makes the household pleasant. In a nation, it fosters prosperity and civic congeniality. In the church, it pleases God, it honors Christ, it cultivates joy, it stimulates love, and it nurtures the welfare of the flock. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is good and pleasant in every way. Good for the soul, that's the whole point of verse 1. Unity is good for the soul. Here's verse 2. Unity sanctifies the body. And the imagery of verse 2 is vivid. And bear in mind that the subject here is still unity. It, that's the first word in the verse, that's a pronoun that refers to the antecedent directly in front of it, unity. Unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, if you're reading a different translation, it it probably speaks of the oil running down to the hem of his garment. The Hebrew expression literally means going down to the mouth of his garment. So it suggests simply the idea of an opening in the garment. The, The same Hebrew word could be used to speak of both the lower and the upper opening of a a garment. So the text really isn't as specific as most of our translations make it. Some commentators think that this is a reference to the lower hem. So you'd have the oil literally saturating the entire garment. Others say, no, this is speaking of just the collar because let's be honest, the, the idea of a priest literally soaked from head to foot with oil doesn't make a very pleasing mental image. John Gill says this, for example. Here's Gill, quote, "'It wouldn't have been decent to have his clothes greased from top to bottom.'" The fact is, the outer garment of a priest's outfit was a, a sleeveless smock called the ephod. Here's what Exodus 28 verse 31 says about how the ephod was made. Make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. In other words, there was a band of woven cloth encircling the opening around the neck. And one class of commentators says, that's what this means. It's not talking about the lower hem of the priest's garment, but just the collar. Other commentators say, no, this is oil all the way down. Here's one who says, the, quote, the oil was poured upon the head of Aaron so profusely as to run down upon his garments. It's customary in the East to pour out the oil on the head so profusely as to reach every limb. Now, frankly, I don't know whether it's vitally important one way or the other. Either way, the picture here is of oil copiously flowing down and being diffused over a long distance. And and the idea both here and in verse 3 is to suggest that the liquid flows from the height to the depths. And so I'm inclined, I think, to agree with those 
who, who say, no, the imagery here does picture the high priest being anointed literally from head to foot. That's the way I think it probably should be read. By the way, this was not normally done. Priests were routinely anointed just by a sprinkling of oil, but this, notice, specifically mentions Aaron. And it's a fact that when the first tabernacle was inaugurated and Aaron was anointed, Leviticus 8.12 says, Moses poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him, implying there that a large amount of this special fragrant oil was used on that occasion. It's reminiscent, frankly, of John 12, verse 3, where we're told that Mary took a whole pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, the precious oil mentioned in our psalm refers to something very specific and unique. This is the anointing oil that was prepared for the tabernacle, and it's the anointing oil that was set aside to anoint the priests and the special furnishings. It was made from a recipe that God gave by special inspiration, and that recipe was not to be used to make oil for any other purpose. And it was special in that sense. Only for this one purpose could oil be put together using that recipe. And it wasn't a secret recipe. It's recorded for us in Exodus 30, verses 22 through 25. In fact, let me read that passage. Exodus 30, starting at verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, "'Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much,' that is 250, "'and 250 of aromatic cane, and 24 and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil." Now, by the way, that is a very large amount of aromatic oil. Most commentaries say it's about a gallon and a half if you fill out that recipe. And the Lord goes on then to instruct Moses to anoint all of the sacred instruments in the tabernacle, as well as Aaron. And he says this, verses 29 and 30, "'You shall consecrate the priestly implements with this oil, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests.'" And furthermore, verse 31, "'This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of any ordinary person.'" You shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Now, this oil was highly fragrant. It would fill the whole room with a pleasing fragrance. It was unique and holy, but most important, it was such an important symbol of holiness that anything it touched among the things it was meant to touch was thereby deemed holy, and anything it touched illegitimately was thereby fit only for destruction. The oil belonged to the Lord, and it had just one purpose, to sanctify the instruments of worship and sacrifice. And so when our psalm compares unity to the oil running through Aaron's beard down to the hem of his garment, the message is that unity has a far-reaching sanctifying effect. The church, the body of Christ, 
is sanctified by our unity in a way that even exceeds the mere symbolism of Aaron's oil. We are truly and literally sanctified, made holy through the cultivation of unity with one another. That's why Jesus' prayer for our sanctification in John 17 focused so much on the issue of unity. Unity sanctifies the body in a profound and singular way. That's what verse 2 is about, the special sanctifying influence of brotherly unity. And so again, verse 1, unity is good for the soul. Verse 2, unity sanctifies the body. And now finally, verse 3, unity refreshes the land. Verse 3 paints the picture of the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, that is a statement that's a little bit hard to unravel if you understand geography, because Mount Hermon is 120 miles north and east of Jerusalem as the crow flies, and it's nowhere close to Zion. And given the geography of that region, there is no way that the dew of Hermon could literally run downhill and end up on Mount Zion. It might flow all the way to the Dead Sea, but to get to Jerusalem from Hermon, it would have to go thousands of feet downhill and then thousands of feet back up, and liquid doesn't flow that way. One commentator I read claimed that there must have been another hill just north of, just above Mount Zion that was nicknamed Hermon. But nobody else agrees with that. Another commentator says verse 3 doesn't really mean to say Zion, but Sirion, which is another name for one of the lower peaks on the Mount Hermon range. I'm not buying that one either. Mount Hermon is a very high range. It has three peaks that are more than 9,000 feet high. And Hermon has the heaviest dew and the greatest amount of rainfall in that whole sector of the Middle East. It's, uh, that, is the, that is the one really rainy place in Israel. And for much of the year, the peak of Mount Hermon is actually covered with snow. There's a famous ski resort on the eastern slope of Hermon. So it is true that Hermon, Mount Hermon is a, a major source of water for the Golan Heights and all of those regions further south. And a lot of that water does run down to the Sea of Galilee, and from there it goes past Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. But there is no way, aside from, you know, evaporation and then new rain, there's no way that the dew of Hermon could ever end up on the mountains of Zion. Skeptics sometimes point to this very passage as an example of an egregious geographical error in the Bible. But frankly, the solution to all of this is very simple. What the psalmist is saying, he's describing a hypothetical scenario where heavy dew gathers on Zion and runs all the way down, because Zion doesn't get dew. Zion is more of a desert climate, so it just doesn't get that kind of dew. But the psalmist is comparing brotherly unity to uh, what it would be like if Zion got the same amount of heavy dew and rain that falls on Mount Hermon. You could literally translate the Hebrew that way. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. And in fact, uh, that is precisely how the NIV has it. And in this case, I think the NIV gets it right. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. In other words, unity is something that refreshes the land 
by watering and enlivening the barren ground and causing the whole land to be invigorated and refreshed. And we know what that's like, especially here in Southern California. After a a period of drought or a really dry summer, we wish for a long and steady rain, and, and we rejoice when it comes. And the psalmist says that's what unity is like. There's a similarity between verse 3 and the illustration in verse 2. Both verses picture unity as something that flows down and diffuses and disperses blessings on the way. In verse 2, it's the blessing of holiness and a sweet-smelling fragrance. In verse 3, it's the blessing of refreshment and life-giving hydration. So the whole idea of the psalm is that unity is a uniquely rich blessing filled with a plethora of affiliated benefits. It's a fountain of happiness and pleasure, and it's, a, it's sheer folly to spurn the pursuit of unity in a family or in a nation or, above all, in the church. A lack of unity in any kind of family or community only makes every aspect of life exponentially harder and more unpleasant. Romans 14, verse 9, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That is the same message as our psalm. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the selfishness and the carnality that causes us to have too low of an opinion of our unity in Christ, starting in our families and extending even to our fellowship here and to the true people of God beyond the walls of our church campus. May we value that unity that Christ prayed for. May we pursue the accompanying holiness, and may we make the most of our union with Christ. We pray in Christ's name for His glory and for your good pleasure. Amen.